What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Here is what I have lined up for you today. From ownership to the head coach to the academy to the first team and support stuff. When everyone seems to be on the same boat and all have the same sort of thought process and direction of where the club's going to go in and you're allowed to develop that, that's when I think you get to see success. This is the What The Footy podcast. I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. Download, subscribe, rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. Knew Sam Allardyce liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's a putting off. Powerful people and I think they need to recognise that, but then also... They need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. So we're in the league. Let's just win this to appease the fan. Welcome to the What the Footy podcast, David. How are you doing today? You good? I'm very good, thank you. Very good yourself? Yeah, and no, I'm I'm good. Surviving, obviously, bit bit of a tough tough weekend for me, obviously. Nigeria out of AFCON, Arsenal more or less maybe, maybe uh, slipping at the top four race, but um, but we move anyway, we move. Yeah, yeah, I see that, I see that. Arsenal were um, a little bit inconsistent at times at the minute. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit of a funny old, funny old game, but um, we start off the podcast with this question, which is what is football to you, a business or a sport and why? Uh, for me, I think football is a sport. It's got business elements in attached to it, obviously with the top leagues and the commercial and you know the revenue and the TV that it brings. But for me, it's always a sport. Um, for the people, it's a sport that you can play at any level, anywhere. You, know, you can park with your friends, all the way up to professional, to amateur, to youth. So for me, it's a highly competitive sport. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and do you follow a team? Because a lot of people I speak to have worked in the game for a long time. Like I had Mike Rigg come on here and he he was talking about how difficult, obviously, being being involved in the business of football and the business of sport. It's hard to eventually like have that, have that, have that team that, that, that you sort of followed. Do you, do you follow a team at all? I do. Um I, I don't follow them as much as I did when I was younger, but yeah. um Tottenham was my team, so you probably don't want to hear that one being an <laughs> Arsenal supporter. <laughs> but yeah, I had the privilege to work there as well, which was good. So yeah, I obviously still keep an eye on results and what's going on and watch their games when they're on they're on TV and stuff. But I wouldn't say I'm an avid fan where I go to a lot of games because obviously you get consumed by whichever yeah. club I'm working at the time so obviously you spend the best part of 20 years working in elite sort of talent ID player identification scouting and I think like the first question I'd love to sort of find out from yourself is since since obviously when you started in the game obviously working at Crystal Palace in the early 2000s to obviously recently at Huddersfield how has sort of player player recruitment player identification sort of changed and evolved with stuff like technology coming into in, in, into place. It almost feels as though player recruitment now is almost very, very data and stats-based. We've become a little bit too obsessed with that and are we missing mm. the core raw elements of just an eye test and seeing a player and just, just watching watching them and seeing how they play? I think you're right. I think it, you know, there's a lot, I would say the big difference is the data. It's a lot more analytical. 
there's an array of data out there and there's a way of statistical programs that you can use for your clubs. Um, for me, it's good to have that. It's good to have that knowledge because you can um, gather what you call outliers, so maybe things that the, the eye can't see and it can you know, deliver some really good information. But I think the data is, is all dependent on your club and the style you play and how you look to analyse it from, from the club's perspective. I still think there's a huge element on scouting live games um, and actually for scouts that are part of a club to still look at players and see how they perform in that individual games because I think you get to see a different, you get to see maybe some more characteristic reactions as well. Like during the game of how they're going to respond to situations when they're under pressure, how they warm up, how they communicate with teammates. And if you've done your homework, if we're talking first team players, if you've done your homework, then them sort of key indicators, once you've got your, your data and your basis on your technical, tactical, physical, those sort of the key characteristics can give you some, some really good indicators. And if that combines with the work you've already done, then, you know, that could be, you know, more tick, more ticks in the box. But I think you're only going to gather, gather that sort of detail by viewing the game live. Yeah, I, th- I think that's 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 quite a fascinating, fascinating point because especially now with the challenges of sort of player recruitment, different budget, yeah, different sort of budget restraints as well. How do you almost compete from, from a sort of um, transfer perspective in terms of acquiring player? Because like everyone's trying to stay in the league, everyone's trying to fight for top four, and obviously like your sort of journey, being at different clubs, working with different sort of ownership models, sort of. Um, club cultures and, and, and sort of stuff like that. How, how did you sort of navigate in terms of dealing with those budget restraints? Yeah, I've been um, quite fortunate really to work with all different types of budgets and I think you learn to adapt. And um, I think the biggest key in any club you work at is first of all to understand the philosophy and the culture. Yeah. Obviously the play, the playing style. And the key is to align everything together as much as you can. So at the times when I was head of recruitment for clubs to have that, you know, relationships with, with the manager and with the board and with, you know, fellow, not just fellow scouts, but teams from like from the analytical department, from the physical department, all this plays a key role. And I think, and there'd be different playing styles along my uh, different clubs as well. So Bournemouth and Tottenham, you know, like to play a certain style of football, um, very attacking, very fast paced where Huddersfield uh, the championship was a little bit different. It was a little bit more physical and maybe a little bit more direct. So again, it's understanding. Sometimes you have to take the emotion out of what sometimes we view or I view as a personal player for that club and see what the objectives is and what the, what the club needs. Because obviously we've all got our idea of a, of a player that we would like, but it might not necessarily be the right fit at that time. So I think you have to become, you have to adapt to your surroundings and the culture. And once you've adapted to that, then it's it's about aligning yourself with, you know, what is the process? What do we need? What are we looking for? And like you say, that's when your data comes in because the way you analyse it in a certain way, then you can also align your scouts and the analysts to look at players in a certain, in a certain way because they're going to have to come in and um, fit that philosophy. And for me, it's always been about environment which players are coming out, what environments and what they're coming into to give them the best chance of success and to transition into that. 
So sort of take, for example, someone like um, like a Wolford Zahar when you sort of scouted him or when you sort of brought mm. Son into Tottenham. What what sort of conversations were you having when you were sitting down with um, the manager at the time, whether that was Maurizio, whether you were sitting down with Daniel Levy? What, what are the sort of conversations you're having about in terms of bringing a player to a club? Because it almost feels like you sort of mentioned there that the values of the club, the philosophy, the style of play and, and the character of the player, more so than just their abilities, is really important today in uh, in, in a modern football club. Yeah, it is. I mean, with um, with Wilfred, he was very young at the time, sort of 10, 11 years of age. And mm. um, I, was as, I was fortunate enough to be an academy coach at Palace. And what I noticed, I mean, we're talking back into 2002, 3-4, is... Uh, it's such a good catchment area for talent. Um, that that sort of that sort of area, Croydon, Beckenham, Bromley, South London, and from because I lived in those areas, I sort of understand. And there was a lot more sort of what I call like street raw talent around that probably maybe not necessarily get any opportunities. So um, what I took, what I did then is I went to look for, um, say after an academy game or if I had a Sunday off and I went playing just to go and look at games. And I was fortunate enough to see Wilfred because um, my younger cousin was playing in the same team as him at the time and kept asking me to come and watch. And he was playing for a team called Whitehorse Wanderers, which was a newly formed sort of under-10 team. We played in an area called Wandle Park in West Croydon. So again, not probably not the most affluent of areas. Newly formed team, didn't even have, I mean, if I recall, didn't even have proper kit. So, but outstood Wilfred with um, great skills, great technical skills, very raw, willing to drive and run past players, had sort of an aggressive attitude where he wanted to score goals, was very athletic and and he had that sort of um, that game-changing finesse, which he's probably taken into his later, later development and late career. So, when you bring someone like that into in a, in a professional environment, obviously you, the most thing that someone like Wilfred needed was patience. And that's, that's where Palace was very good. They did give him patience over a, a long period of time to, to develop. Uh, with someone like Song, obviously he's more established, more of a first team type player. So at Tottenham at that level, it was a different competing market. So the aspirations for a club like Tottenham was to try and get into Champions League and compete for the Premier League, which they did in the time that I was there, come very close, but didn't have the budget necessarily of a, a Chelsea or Man City or Man United, Liverpool, for example. So what we what we did is we wanted to find maybe the level underneath. So someone like Song ticked that box straight away. He ticked the physical attributes, which um, he would need to play in a, an aggressive transitional, um, you can call, call it like Genghi Press style, like Maurizio played. So he had to have those attributes. Um, he had to have clever movement in the attacking areas. He was nowhere near the finished article, but he had good technical ability. He was he was sharp and he was intelligent and he had a fantastic, phenomenal work rate as well. So all those ingredients managed that he was sort of in our, our remit that we could be in the market to acquire a player like that, but also understood that he would, again, come in and need that little bit of time to adapt. And which he did, it took him sort of five to six months to really sort of get into the flow of the Premier League and the culture and Tottenham coming from Germany, completely different style. So, again, it's that it's a spot in 
talents in different at their purest form. So Wilfred was his purest form at a young age. So I would say was just at that right time to go into a new challenge and develop. And if you're at a club that's in a position where they can develop that talent, whether it be a first team or youth player, and some now a world class player, Zaha, you know, fantastic, phenomenal player for Palace. I think it's again those environments help shape them to to where they are now. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I think even just building some of the stuff that you said, David, um, especially when you're buying players in, in, in the sort of the modern game, there you have a lot of pressure from the media, a lot of pressure from the fans, especially when you're paying a certain transfer fee or you're putting a lot of faith in the young player from the academy setup, like Wolf coming straight into the first team like he did. How, how much do you have to have that communication with the board and with different stakeholders to, to, to have that patience and to, to believe the process? Because as we all know, it takes time for players to adapt, whether that's a new culture, and a new language, a new environment, a new style of play. Yeah. How, how, how much do, do those sort of stakeholders in the boardroom have the patience to, to really back your decisions and, um, and sort of stick with them? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's always a challenge, managing upwards. Um, it's never easy. I think a good example of that was, was at Huddersfield where we took a, a Mel Smith-Rowe on loan from, from Arsenal. Um, but he was a player that I knew all about from, from when he was very young. We tried to take him when he was at Tottenham when he was 16, 17. Followed his path um, when he went to Red Bull. And when you look at talent like that, it's it's coming into a completely different environment and it was a needs must at the time. So Huddersfield needed a player in no sort of position, the 8-10 type position. Um, and when a player of that quality was becoming available, then um, you have to have that sort of perseverance and belief in ourselves and the recruitment team and the manager at the time, Danny Cowley, that, that he is the right player. So we have to present a well-rounded case to the owner and to the board that even at that level to bring someone like that in on loan um, but we knew full well that even though he was only coming in for a short period of time that he could be the difference maker um, there obviously was questions raised from certain members of the board of being sort of not much played much first team at the time or you know his current injury situation wasn't great but he came in and adapted into you know, a different style of football, a team that was fighting relegation in the championship. And he had to really pull on those characteristic traits. And I think that's helped him develop to where he is now. And, you know, it was a credit to the Huddersfield ownership at that time to um, allowing us to bring such a player in on loan. And the same with Trevor as well. When Trevor came in, Trevor Chalaba from Chelsea, who um, did also did fantastic for Huddersfield that year. And I think, when you get those players on the peripheral like that, that, you know, I think that them key moves, them key low moves can really elevate them back into their, you know, very, very big first team clubs and then give them the opportunity to go on. Um, but it does need, it does, it does need good reassurance from, from the ownership, especially when you're looking to either acquire or loan a loan player. Yeah. And, and I think what you mentioned there is a really big point because, those, those sort of young players playing in, at those Category 1 academies, they want to get first-team men's football. But on the flip side of it, you have the balance of, like you mentioned there, like teams in the Championship are fighting for, for survival, they're yeah. fighting for the playoffs. So it's even more of a, it's even more of a bigger challenge because it's almost sink or swim, really. So 
it's all about yeah, getting, getting it's, it's all about getting that balance right and it's, it's worked well for the likes of the Mason Mounts obviously Harry Kane was down there as well and um really really useful as well and and I think a, a big thing just going back to the point you mentioned on on Wilf in terms of that South London talent factory we've seen the likes of the Jaden Sancho sort of come out of that environment as mm-hmm. well do, do you believe that that we have enough of that in the game of, of that raw that raw ability that raw talent because it almost feels as though some of that stuff can almost get coached out of you a little bit as you sort of progress and get get a little bit older do you think that as, as, as football do you feel like we're embracing enough of that and really encouraging those players to really to really do that because if I think about Crystal Palace I think they're sort of club culture and philosophy is very underrated. If you look at the likes of obviously Wolf there and Belassi, similar types of players, players, and then players who've come in now, like Michael Elise from Reading, Eze from sort of QPR, very sort of similar style. And irrespective of who was the manager at there at the time, whether that was Alan Pardew or Roy Hodgson, they've always continued that philosophy of, of bringing through those, those sorts of players. Mm. Yeah, and that's, and that's a full credit to Palace because they do have, even with young players, they have Tariq Mitchell now. He's playing regularly, um, came through the academy. And I think they will continue to do that. And it's such a it's an invaluable resource. When you have such a when you have such a talent factory which they have, such a such a pull on that area where they can go into the areas like Croydon, Bromley, South London, um, and surrounding areas, you know, from that, it's such a huge catchment area. Um and it's not just for Palace. There are a lot of a lot of big clubs, Tottenham, Arsenal, West Ham, Chelsea, Fulham, will all go to these type areas to get this type of talent. Uh, it's probably not. I think sometimes with those type of talents, when you're at the big big clubs, it's. I mean, Arsenal have done well, but it's very hard sometimes to break through. So, I think when you are at them big clubs, you have to choose your next career path. You know, very skillfully and very educatedly because. There's plenty of there's other areas where you can drop down into the championship or even go abroad, like some talents have, and utilize that market. It's not to be, I think, for young talents, it's not to be so sort of prescriptive to stay at an Arsenal or Chelsea or Tottenham if you're not getting the game time and you start getting on the ages of 19, 20, when it's time when you're ready to play first team football. So, again, I think there is. I think England at the moment is very fortunate to be sort of blessed with a lot of talent coming through. But it'd be interesting to see the the next progressions of actually that talent getting into play sort of first team football. Yeah, no, definitely. Before we go into my favourite part of the show, which is uh, what the foot are you lying for? Um, it'd be great to sort of understand, because obviously as you've sort of moved, whether that was from Palace to then going to Millwood and Southampton and sort of so forth, what what were almost the key lessons that you took from each place that you've almost you've you've really been at? Because it almost feels like David that everywhere you've sort of work is is quite a similar type of club and the type of the way they operate. Whether that's a Palace, a Southampton, a Bournemouth, sort of in terms of how how they want to run those football clubs. What what have been the key lessons that you've sort of taken along those journeys and the different models and strategies of of, of those clubs? I think for me, I've always I've always been open minded to learning. So. Um... Even when I went to Sweden abroad um, from Tottenham, I think from each club, I think you can always learn something different from each one. And you, you gain that little bit more experience. You gain that little bit more knowledge. 
and you understand you get to understand a different culture a different method a different way of working so for me then it you know i'm learning how to develop how i interact with people different people from different cultures whether that's from managers from 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 staff from ownerships from um, different languages it's just and then that i can hone my skills and that's because one of the things that you say you mentioned they're all similar type clubs is probably because maybe my journey subconsciously it took me through to um clubs where you're not privileged to have the best you know the top top talent but it's a uh, i think sometimes the secret is a spot maybe like level underneath that can go on to become you know one of the one of the top class players that we've been speaking about so i think taking little bits little bits of knowledge little bits of learning little bits of experience and learning a lot about myself and each culture because each environment was different so it is all about learning and growing and um i've still got loads to do so it's um you know it's been a privilege working at those clubs and it's just got me to where i am today and um hopefully it will take me good stead for my um next journey yeah, and no, I definitely want, and we're going to touch on that in the second part. But now for my favourite part of the show, um, what, what the foot are you lying for? Um, take me away with your uh, three statements, please. So in my career, have I worked in Belgium as a scout? Have I worked as sales and advertising while I was part-time in football? And did have I worked in South London with underprivileged kids in backgrounds coaching street football in cages. So obviously the final one, obviously you've mentioned, alluded to the fact that you're from the area and obviously uh, the whole stuff with Wolf as well. So I'm going to say that one is true. Um, working in Belgium. I always do my research, David. I know you've done some consulting for some clubs abroad. Um I'm not sure Belgium's one of them there. That's the thing. And then the other one is you've worked part-time in sales and advertising. Yeah. I'm going to go with that one as true and the Belgian one as a lie, but we'll um, we'll find out towards the end. But just sort of touching on some of the stuff that you that you sort of just mentioned uh, just, just previously in terms of sort of football operations, what would you say are some of the key... Uh, distinct differences between how it sort of works here in the UK versus when you were when you're working in Sweden to also um, I found that you also worked a little bit um, uh, for Bayer Leverkusen and, and Real Betis as well what would you say to some of the, the main differences between how we do things here in the UK versus th- those other countries and leagues yeah I would say um, back uh, by Leverkusen was 2008-2009 and I was doing an academy manager's license course because that was sort of, I was thinking of going in that sort of direction as my next progression. So as part of that course, you had to do it to study abroad. So I was fortunate enough to get a few days at Bayer Leverkusen looking at their sort of behind the scenes operations, how they work from academy through to first team, their business model, philosophy, etc. And one of the key things I noticed was they had, um, not to say the English subs didn't have this, but it was a little bit more thought out and maybe a little bit more advanced at the time where they had a clear philosophy from integrating academy players into the first team. So, and that was part of their budget each year. So um, they had the sporting director, 
which we had never heard of at that time in the UK. And part of his role, which was really vital, was to, as well as sort of the operations of the club, um, was to integrate two players within the first team squad each year. That was his job without fail. So oh, that wow. had to be given. So one of those had to be within the first team setup, and another one could be um, uh, developing around the first team setup and maybe need a brief loan period or something like that. Or he had to be sold as a valued asset and that would be reinvested back down into the academy because they had to buy a corporation. Um, so that was that was really interesting. They they believed in that philosophy that what they were developing, they were paying five million euros a year for their academy, which would be sort of a cap one if we're looking in from over here. They wanted some results from that. They wanted to see what was, you know, what what was coming through for them for, for that investment. So that was the pressure they had as a club, the head coach, the sporting director, and and from top to bottom, they was all aligned with that. Everyone understood that. Um, that was the way that that was their model. That was, so any head coach that came into it had to buy into that philosophy. So there were it uh, that was a given, and it's the first time I'd seen it from that situation where probably at the time in the UK we still had the manager model where he would. If he had to depart for any reason, then the new staff would come in, the whole change of style, change of player, change of personnel. That was the first time I really see that aligned. Um, and obviously it's still going now. So I suppose at the time there was a you know miles ahead of us. Um my experience in Sweden uh, was it was a very it was quite an quite an educated um opening for me because I realised how, first of all, perfectly well they spoke English. I spoke no Swedish. <laughs> so they helped me out a little bit there. And But they were just, you know, the cult, they had this, they had this belief that, um, that that no one was better than no one else. So sometimes, you know, everyone can get caught up in the football world of how exciting it is and how glamorous it looks on the outside. But over in Sweden, you could be working in any industry in doing any type of role. And you was respected just the same. So, from a cultural point of view, that was, um, you know, that was, was a really nice culture to sort of work in, and very different from from the UK. So, that was, you know, real. So, that, and that's what I think sometimes when we're looking to acquire players from uh, other countries, especially if you're looking at Premier League or a Championship club, you really must take into account these cultural values that some of these players have. Um, because you are bringing them into your environment, but you also got to be aware that you know they they do hold some of these traits. And I think it's again, it's about education, it's about learning, it's about doing your homework. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and was there any any sort of nuances that you sort of noticed in terms of how they were recruiting, sort of playing? Yeah, I mean, back then, I mean, Germany still do it now. So back then, uh, Leverkusen, they still had the same model, probably what Dortmund do now, where they look to buy a top exciting talent rather than sort of ready-made players. Leverkusen, I would say, you know, those early periods was acquiring a lot of top talent from um, not only from Germany, but from various outlets in Europe and even South America. They, When I was there at the time, they just signed Arthur Vidal, who was seen as the young sort of top talent at the time who went on to have an outstanding career. So what they did is they understood their environment. They understood how they operated and they bought top talent in to fit that. So they would have sort of four or five 
core players within their first team that they would call sort of the uh, homegrown leaders of the squads. And they would be sort of the guides for the younger players. But when they were looking to invest into that, then they would always go for sort of top talent between the ages of 17 and 22. So I suppose talking nearly 13 years ago, there was, you know, I see it firsthand of how you can get top talent into an environment and buy them if you're looking to purchase at a certain age and then develop them because they know a labour coup so I'd probably like them to maybe sort of a Tottenham style club here in the UK where if a, if a big four comes in, you know you're going to lose the talent. But it's um, that you're in that position that you're going to maximise that um, revenue opportunity as well. Yeah, and, and I think also maybe something linked to that as well, it'll be fascinating to understand, obviously, uh, if you look over at our league as well, obviously, how someone like Thomas Tuchel, Jurgen Klopp sort of developed and sort of went on their sort of their coaching journey. We look at Ralph Hassan, who or who who Southampton looked at for a long time via the, the black box model, and, and eventually they, they were able to, to get him there as well. I think here in this country, we're starting to sort of see, see more British managers sort of getting opportunities, whether that's ex-players like Steven Gerrard sort of navigating through their careers as well. How, how many years behind do you think we are in terms of developing coaches to the level that Germany have and, and the Bundesliga? I think the gap's definitely a lot closer than it, yeah. than it was, um, without a doubt. And in the, probably four or five years ago, it was a worry, real big worry, uh, because I think here in the UK, we have some real you know, exciting young coaches. Um, the German system believe, because they have this they've had it in place for such a long time, the technical director, sport director model, they see the head coach that can, uh, so, so say for, as you mentioned, Thomas Tuchel or Nagelsmann or Ralph Hasper, a lot of those type coaches um, not necessarily maybe had the biggest careers in terms of playing backgrounds, but they've gone through, Germany value the educational system. So if they've gone through a certain, they've gone through and worked through certain age groups from under 17, under 19, maybe the second team, and they've had good success in that area, they don't see no problem at all of them putting them into the head coach's role of a top Bundesliga club, where I think maybe over here, we overlook that. You know, it's all about which name's going to come in, which is, you know, the exciting appointment yeah. from abroad, or is it going to be someone who's been around America around 20 times? Yeah. Or are we going to give an exciting opportunity to a, to a young coach? I think sometimes we lack that maybe belief in our own in our own coaches because I say there's you know off the top of my head I can probably think of five six top top young coaches um that could go into maybe sort of a league one or championship side like a you know like you've seen Steve Cooper do really well yeah. um that have come from that background that can transfer transfer into into a first team environment but I think we get so caught up with the with the old school management concept sometimes when it all depends on the model of the club. So if you have got a sporting director and you're looking for a head coach just to coach the first team and develop and bring exciting young players through and obviously get results week in, week out, then then great. There's loads of head coaches there. And if you haven't got that model, I still think that clubs will revert back to a manager-type role. So I think slowly but surely we're getting there, but there's still quite a lot of work to do. Yeah, and I think it's, it's fascinating and I think it'll be interesting to... To sort of see what's what's been your sort of your thoughts on your uh, on, on on your mate Eddie Howe at, um, at Newcastle and how he's been sort of getting on and obviously good to see him 
good to see him back in the Premier League. I, I think it's been obviously yeah. a, um, a sort of a long time coming um, because I think he did a really good job at, at, at Bournemouth. But what's your sort of thoughts on, on how he's been sort of getting on? Yeah, I think he's. I think if you look at the games that Newcastle are playing, you can start, certainly see uh, he's, he's in print. He's starting to sort of take effect slowly. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a very, very difficult job to go into when the team um, is in that position in the league and the expectations of the ownership and the financial investment around it. So that will bring all sorts of pressure in itself. But when I watch the games, you can certainly see that you know, he's looking to implement his own, the way he believes the game should be played, which will be a possession-based game, very front foot, very attacking, very aggressive. And he will look to try and implement that. And I think that he will try and do it where even though, you know, I don't know, reportedly there's a lot of money available, he will still be cautious that it's about the right players and the right fit into the club rather than, sort of the names that he's probably been linked to over 200 names so um, I think he would do a fantastic job there if he's given the if he's given the time if he's given the time to imprint um, what he believes is the right way for Newcastle and it's got some fantastic staff in as well that from that he's worked with at Bournemouth as well I think Newcastle could you know over the next couple of seasons be um, certainly be sort of a top 10 top 6 side could you, could you see yourself going there? Because it seems like the band, the, the band's getting back together, David. I think you've already got you've already got <laughs> Ryan Fraser and uh, Callum Wilson there as well, and obviously he's uh, he's number two there as well. So uh, the uh, I think the band's getting back together. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a great opportunity, but no, I haven't been contacted by Newcastle yet. One question, just before obviously we find that your answers to what the fit are you lying for? I think. What's your thoughts on the January transfer window? Because it almost feels as though there's just some clubs, whether that's my club, Arsenal, like your club, Spurs. And it's almost like we need to do business, but it's almost a thing whereby we're almost waiting a little bit for the summer and almost the January transfer window is almost seen as a, a window whereby it's a bit of a distraction and you're almost being referred and mentioned, um, linked with players um, at a time almost a little bit like Aston Villa, I'm, I'm pretty sure maybe someone like Felipe Coutinho wasn't maybe on their radar, but just became available and they sort of went in there. F from a sort of recruitment and talent ID perspective, how much strategic planning goes into how and when you're going, you're going to go in for players and how you're going to sort of manage that process? The way I've always liked to work when it comes to these situations is with it's having a lot of planning in depth. So ideally, you don't if you do need to dip into the market then you know you don't need if you've done your homework well and you've done your squad planning well obviously you can't calculate sometimes for injuries or a needs bus basis or like you say a reactive situation where maybe Coutinho has come on the market and it's a really good opportunity for your club I think your homework should have been done you know long before that so if there was specific targets that you was looking at and you don't get them um, then you stood, you know, with the planning and the resources you have, then it shouldn't be sort of all panic stations. I think sometimes, because it's very exciting for the fans, but it's um, when you're in it, it can be sort of pretty hectic because it's a very reactive window. It's a very reactive window. No one wants to sell. You know, no one wants to sell their best players for, for cheap, definitely. And 
And if they're not prepared for a, for a bid for one of their players, they're definitely not going to sell. Or if they do have to, then it would have to be for you know ridiculous amounts to make it worth worth their sacrificial for their own club. So it's a it's a very difficult market to operate in. Um, but if you do need to, then to say like if there was a player, a particular player that had a X amount of time on his contract, and you've targeted that um, specific player. That he could be a player for you, for you, for your team in January. Then that could be seen as maybe sort of a sensible acquisition in terms of finance, in terms of availability. But when you're in a market where you're, if you're going to have to pay four or five times over the odds, then sometimes it's just not worth the hassle because you have to look at recuperation from the club's point of view as well. Yes, it might be a good signing for you know for the for the media, for the fans and stuff, but. If it doesn't work out, and January is a very hard market for players to come into adapt straight away, because usually some it's a needs market, so it's either team chasing something or looking to, you know, pull away from the relegation zone. So immediately there's instant pressure on that player, which don't always work out. So you have to be extremely, extremely well prepared for those outcomes. No, that's that's super useful, but it's uh, it's now time to reveal your uh, your answers to uh, what the fit you're lying for. So I said that I scouted in Belgium. Uh, I had a sales and advertising job and I coached in South London with sort of street players in cage football. And the lie out of that was that I didn't scout in Belgium. Yes, I got it right, I got it right. You did, you did, well done. Tell me about the sales and advertising, because it seems you've, I think you've done a master's in psychology, so now you're talking about sales and advertising. I believe, obviously, you mentioned the the academy course that you were doing there as well. I think you did your dissertation on donorship and director's tests. You've almost done all this sort of additional sort of studying and learning and different things. And how how do you think that's all come together to help you even working in football? Yeah, I just sales and advertising was was invaluable really because mm. at the time um, I was working part time in academy, so um, I had a mortgage to pay, I still had responsibilities and bills to pay for, so you know I needed to supplement, a, a, you know, a, a full time income. Even though I treated my part time academy job, and I wish it was at the time my full time role, it wasn't so. Um, with that, it's, it's it's learning to deal with different people again, which I've took into football. So, sales and advertising to go out and meet different businesses in from sort of one man bands to sort of uh, like tradesmen to going into sort of more established brands like a big businesses, estate agents, lawyers, um, big sort of market chains, and and the variety was quite big. So. Again, learning to deal with different people in different situations. I mean, I was obviously trying to sell a product or advertising space. It was at the time. So it definitely sort of helped when I'm trying to convince players to sign for my club. I'm working at the time. So it definitely came in as a useful tool. No, that's good. And then obviously the other one was to do with cage football, which you sort of touched upon as well, which I think is yeah. uh, is a big, big sort of breeding ground for some some serious, serious talent. Um yeah, yeah, I love that. I was um, before I went to Palace. I, I worked at the old Wimbledon um, before uh, it, it, before it sort of diluted. But um, 
and I was on a community program. I worked in a development center program and a project, which I think is now called the Greenhouse Project, called Bethwin at the time. It was in southeast London, sort of in Camberwell. And um, they had sort of a range of teams where they played in Tootenbeck Common, was their games on a Saturday morning. And a lot of the, the kids and the players, when they didn't come from probably sometimes some sort of bad upbringings or were from different lifestyles where you know broken families or maybe you know some of the siblings around them have been involved in all sorts of crime and so it wasn't really um you know they wasn't probably given the best opportunities so working with that particular group um under those sort of circumstances was a was a real privilege and again you know good on for me to be able to communicate and sort of connect with these sort of young players they were under 15 at the time so you know, I had to build a relationship and build trust and build, you know, felt that from their point of view that I was going to stay with them for the whole season and, you know, try and coach them and get them to, you know, to develop. And a couple of them did go on to have, you know, opportunities to have, I think, successful, but they had trials at clubs. So, um, and then a couple of them have gone on to do sort of really well in their own sort of personal career away from football. So working, working, dealing with, those types of sort of kids that you know are necessarily shut down when you first meet them they're very sort of guarded to having a good relationship with them come to the end where um you know actually we won this trophy called the stanley cup which was you know really big for them so that was a that got me to see that the amount of talent that is out there that if you if you get them in the right environment under the right conditions and circumstances they can thrive and go on no, 100%. And I think even linked to what you're saying there, I think that's where that piece around sort of player care and player well-being and um, sort of supporting people, whether they go into the game or they don't go into the game and, and just being able to to help people because people come from different sort of backgrounds and going through football as well can be difficult and challenging for different different types Absolutely. of people. Absolutely. Really. So, um, so, yeah. But just some uh, quick-fire questions before we, before we wrap it up. The best player that you ever signed... All identified. Uh, Zaha, Wilfie. Wolf. Uh, which club do you look to and, and admire their football operations? Now, I would, uh, um, if we're talking UK, then I would say probably two like a Southampton and Brighton. I really like their operations, the way they develop sort of their homegrown talent, and um, they seem to be sort of very, very sort of organised and geared up for those sort of programmes then abroad I'm still sort of a big fan of the German system the Dortmund and Leverkusen of that sort of brand and educational the way they develop players and staff and coaches No definitely where did you enjoy working the most? Uh, I should say Tottenham really because that was my that was my club but I, I really enjoyed Bournemouth um for many reasons and um, because Bournemouth at the time when I first went there as head of recruitment just came up from League One um, so and during that two years that I was there before I moved on to work with Tottenham and we had a really successful period where we managed to you know win the championship and get to the Premier League and we'd done it on sort of a moderate moderate budget over the two-year period and Bournemouth at the time was quite a small club and considered not to be sort of challenging for those sort of, especially for Premier League. So, you know, it was, um, 
to get to have that sort of achievement on on a record at that time with Bournemouth against the competing clubs in the Championship, it was really enjoyable. And what would you make? Because I'm always fascinated when I hear stories, like even like when I spoke with Les and Southampton's journey from the brink of administration to obviously playing in the Europa League. What would you almost say was the secret behind that that sort of journey and success? I think I think from the club's perspective, it's always a, when successful periods always happen when the club seem to click and align, um, yeah. and that's and that's and that could be at any club at any level when they sort of have that connection with from ownership to the head coach to the academy to the first team and support stuff when everyone seems to be on the same boat and all have the same sort of thought process and direction of where the club's going to go in and you're allowed to develop that. That's when I think you get to see success. Obviously, you see at the highest level of clubs like Man City that Pep's had that time to develop it and they have that real core philosophy now. It happened at Bournemouth where Eddie sort of established that over the, you know a long period of time and had good success. Poch was allowed to, you know, he was allowed to develop that there as well. So I think in Southampton, and I've had that really good model as well. So I think it's that alignment and allowing that time to develop. And it's the same really sort of in, in my career, it's having that time to develop and go on um, different journeys, working at different clubs and different roles. And I just wanted to give myself a big round of knowledge. Like I said, you mentioned the Masters in sports psychology and stuff. Just uh, I think football is such a fascinating, fascinating sport and it's highly competitive. Um, and to be have a career in it, um, especially at the levels that you know I'd like to achieve, I think having that education or working at different clubs has certainly helped. And those relationships and alignments at, at those given times have, you know, definitely helped me in my journey as well. And and what's next for you then, David? Obviously, um, obviously you've had sort of 20 years experience working in the game. That there are a few clubs out there that I can think of who you could definitely use a bit of your your sort of expertise. I know last year you were linked to potentially a role um, at Celtic and there's obviously clubs who you could deal with someone like yourself coming in and, and being that sort of sporting director, technical director. What's what's sort of next for you? Yeah, it's um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, especially during the pandemic, to have some reflection time, which was really good. And I think we all, you know, we all needed that and we had no choice, but we had to have it. Um, so, and it got, got me thinking about my next step and my next journey. And um, I've had some good chats, well, two good chats ongoing at the moment, one club abroad and one club in the UK. Unfortunately, I can't mention the names, but, um, and for me, it's about the projects. It's about the long-term projects now. So for myself, I'm ready to commit to a long-term project where you can build some success in the club, but you can build it in the, the right way with the core values and the philosophy and the alignment and over a long period of time and try and build that um, and build a successful sort of model that when I go that I've had a you know a small a small part in that so it's about the next project it's not about the name of the club or the size of the club it's all about the next project. No definitely and, and I know for a fact that when you do find that next project there's going to be some shrewd uh, talent ID and uh, player recruitment I hope so. I hope so. No, definitely. But yeah, no, absolute pleasure having you 
having you on the What The Footy podcast, um, David, and um, always been someone that I wanted to get on based on sort of what you've done and, and sort of achieved some some sort of great, great stories and uh, what an amazing journey and uh, long may it continue. But thanks for coming on, on, on the platform, man. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Really enjoyed it. No, thank cheers. You. Thank you. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's a putting off. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the but right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. So winning the league, let's just win this to appease the fans.